www.ncpp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are joining us for the first time, you'll be interested to know for the next hour, we'll be taking calls and questions that people have concerning God's word. If there's a passage you're studying that you're having difficulty with or a personal challenge in your life or ministry that you would like counsel on, if we can help by the grace of God, we will do the best we can. All you need to do is pick up the phone and call us again locally. The number is 843-525-1859. We have internet listeners who live stream the radio station. This station, WAGP, is on the internet 24-7 around the world. And if you're calling in another part of the United States, you can use our toll-free number if you'd like. That number is 877-WAGP-980. A number of people every week just email us here directly into the studio, and it will pop up on our screen. And if you would like to do that, the email address is TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. If you do call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable and you want to remain totally anonymous, you can simply dictate uh, your question to the person receiving the phone calls this morning. As always, Rick, it's great to be here today for the Bible Line. It is indeed, Pastor. So let's get to some of those questions that have already come in via email. John from Roundo writes, I have a question concerning the dietary laws of the Old Testament. I've heard some defend their position by saying, well, if Jesus and the disciples ate this way and we want to be Christ-like, then we should eat the food of Jesus and the disciples. Could you please shed some light on this? Thanks so much. Well, uh, it's a good question, and it comes up from time to time. uh, But we always give priority to live callers. So we're going to go to our first live caller, and we'll come back to this question concerning the dietary laws of the Bible. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Uh, Thank you very much, gentlemen. Um, I have a question regarding Psalm 91. And I've only got an NIV in front of me right now, although I generally read the NAS. But I've got a question Um, in the, uh, I believe it's in the 12th verse where it says you'll tread upon the lion and the cobra, and you will trample the great lion and the serpent. And in some, some, some translation it says dragon there. But I don't understand. Uh, I always think of the lion as, as our Lord. And, um, so I'm just a little, I'm a little confused. And then, of course, having, uh, having it twice in a row there. Um, I wonder if you could clarify that a bit for me. That's a good question. Uh, Psalm 91 is a beautiful psalm, really speaking, among other things, of God's protection and shelter for the believer. In fact, it opens with the words, uh, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So it's Psalm 91 in our English Bibles. If I remember, it's Psalm 90 in the Hebrew Bible because they combine some different uh, uh, Psalms together. And in other Bibles of the world, 
uh, somebody might be listening and live streaming. It may not be Psalm 91, but it's the psalm that begins, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. When you uh, come down a little bit to uh, verse 10, let me pick it up there. It says, no evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, lest you strike your foot against a stone. They will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent will, uh, you, you will trample down. Now, in reference to the lion, it's, it's a good question because there are times indeed when Messiah is represented by the metaphor of a lion. If you remember when God had Israel camp, he had them camp under four different banners. There was the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so they uh, camped under that particular banner. And of course, included in Judah was a couple of tribes that camped with them. Um, In the center of Israel's camp was the tabernacle. And all around the tabernacle, uh, there were tribes in a specific order. And so you had uh, Judah right at the entrance of the tabernacle on the east side. And under their banner would bend the banner of a lion. Um, if you were facing the entrance to the left side or the north side would be the tribe of Reuben, uh, to the west side up at the top of the tabernacle, if we can use that term would have been, uh, the, the banner of Ephraim and then to the right side, or really technically the north side would have been the tribe of Dan and Dan and each of those had two other tribes with them for a total of 12, um, the, the, the tribes, interestingly, in one sense, picture every aspect or character of the Lord Jesus. He is often pictured by the lion for the simple reason that he is from the tribe of Judah. And that was the banner his family would have been under. Because, of course, he comes from the tribe of Judah. And within that tribe, there was all kinds of different families and specifically from the family of David. Uh, But it's interesting when you look at the four Gospels, um, you see in one sense a picture of each of the banners that are listed in the Old Testament. Uh, Matthew really is a picture of the Lion of the tribe of Judah affirming his uh, deity and his right to rule as king. Um, Mark would be a picture of the, the another tribe that walked under the banner of the ox, where he is the servant of Yahweh. Luke, where he is the incarnate man, and John the eagle, the divine son. And interestingly, this uh, these four banners also represent some special creatures with four faces on them that are described in the book of Ezekiel that have these same four faces. So context is everything. Um, Sometimes, indeed, the Lord, because he comes from the tribe and family of Judah uh, (coughs) in David, he is pictured with a lion. But here, I think he's just uh, speaking overall of God's security and God's protection over his people, Israel, Um, that indeed, even when they traveled those 40 years God would protect them. He would bear them up. Even their shoes wouldn't wear out. And if they would obey him, none of those illnesses would come upon them. It was a specific time-related promise, which some of our charismatic friends have taken, and they've applied it broadly, that if we obey God, we never have to be sick and so forth. And wish that were the case. I wouldn't have a cold this morning. Um, But 
there are other reasons for sickness, and many times godly people can get sick just because we live in a fallen world, many other causes. But I, I think what is in view here in, in Psalm 91 is not a specific reference per se to the Lord as it is overall to the protection that God would give his people Israel. But ultimately, of course, the servant of the Lord is the Lord Jesus. And so while Israel is called God's servant uh, throughout Isaiah in the early chapters, Isaiah begins to change the picture from the nation who had been unfaithful to a specific individual. And so um, when you come to the temptation in Mark 4 and Luke 4, uh, you have a reference to his angels giving charge over you to guard you in all your ways because ultimately what Israel was supposed to picture, the, the perfect servant of Israel that Isaiah begins to unfold as he moves into the late 40s and early 50s of those chapters uh, is a picture of Messiah himself. And so I suppose you could say loosely at least one of these verses directly applies to Christ because the Holy Spirit gives us that New Testament commentary in Mark 4 and Luke 4 where the temptation is uh, recorded. But many times passages uh, that even are of a prophetic nature can have a dual meaning, one for the immediate context, (laughs) and then a second one for something further out. Some are just further out, just way out in the future, but some have an immediate, a near fulfillment as well as a further fulfillment. And the psalmist is really recounting God's faithfulness in this great psalm uh, over his people Israel as uh, his chosen people. So it's, a, it's an interesting uh, passage of Scripture, and it's related, of course, in the Exodus uh, when, when they wander and some promises that God made to Israel through his servant Moses. Great question. Uh, let's go on to the next. I think we have another live caller, possibly. And, um, actually, or, no. Or we're we, going to um, go back to that uh, Go back question. to that one, yeah. Again, John wanted to know about the laws, the dietary laws of the Old Testament. He's heard some defend their position by saying, well, if Jesus and the disciples ate this way and we want to be Christ-like, then we should eat the food of Jesus and the disciples. Well, there are, there are two key chapters in the Old Testament that review the dietary laws. One is Leviticus 11, the other is Deuteronomy 14. And as you read through those chapters, you'll discover some things that they could or could not eat. Uh, something that would chew the cud or split the hoof or both. So that would eliminate things like camels and rabbits and Uh, hogs, and so forth. And so Jews today that follow the Old Testament dietary laws will will never, of course, eat pork or uh, things like a a rabbit or a camel or whatever. In addition, you had all these different scavengers, uh, certain sea creatures, namely those that didn't have fins or scales. And so the things that we uh, enjoy today, like uh, lobster and oysters, we're going to have an oyster roast next month, and uh, shrimp and things like that, uh, they were prohibited under the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Again, you brought scavenger birds of sorts that either ate meat or were scavengers like, you know, seagulls and would be like our our turkey buzzard here in South Carolina. Those were forbidden. Uh, Most uh, winged creatures were forbidden, uh, except those that could could jump or, or swarm. So when you read through those chapters, the immediate question the thoughtful Christian will ask, well, does this have any application for us today? And uh, yes and no. There are certainly some dietary restrictions that God placed in the Old Testament that still apply. 
some that came before the law. And so the passage that immediately comes to my mind is when um, Noah came off the ark. Let me just turn there. Um, it's found in the book of Genesis. And of course, the whole ark account is found in chapters six through nine. And here God said to Noah, every moving thing is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant only you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. Um, so again, God's very specific. You can eat anything you want, uh, except, uh, you cannot eat flesh with, with blood. And of course, God enumerates that in the law as well. And he adds to that some other animals. One of the functions of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament was to distinguish Israel as a people. And the way God largely distinguished them as his chosen people and made them a peculiar people was uh, through things like dietary laws, through um, the way they dress, the way they cut their hair and so forth. And that became a testimony. It's kind of like you, you go to... Um, Pennsylvania today, say to the Amish country, and I know there are different segments in Ohio and so forth, but uh, it's kind of fun to go there uh, at least once in your life and you see these people and they're really different in the way they act and and tourists like to go just to look at them and watch them. Um, And it becomes a a platform uh, for them to function from. Some business-wise, some of them are very astute businessmen and uh, but, but lay all that aside, that is kind of a picture of what you had with Israel in the old Testament. Well, under the new covenant, the way God distinguishes his people is not externally, but internally, uh, by the Holy spirit. Uh, but there are still some dietary restrictions that may surprise some people. Um, one he did in acts 10 through the vision that God gave Peter. If you remember, Peter was, uh, wrestling in terms as a Jewish man, how he should function with Gentiles. And on one occasion around noontime, he was up on the rooftop of his home or someone else's home, actually Simon the Tanner's home and, and down below they were cooking and you could smell the food. I'm sure it made him hungry and God gave him a vision. He went into a trance of sorts where he saw this sheet come down several times and in it, all kinds of four-footed animals, meaning clean and unclean animals. And God said, take and eat. And then he says, what God has cleansed, no one should call unclean. And God uses that as an illustration as to how Peter should function with Gentiles. There was one occasion is listed in uh, the book of Galatians where Peter was somewhat hypocritical and Paul confronted him and rebuked him to his face as a fellow apostle. But God wanted him to have the same openness in terms of eating and other things with Gentiles as he did with a Jewish person. Now, sometimes we become all things to all men. And so if you were going to be a witness to a Jewish person, then you would not unnecessarily offend them. And while you might have the freedom, as Paul will argue in Romans 14, to eat anything you would want, you would adapt your behavior in that setting, it's just like uh, Paul established the principle that circumcision has nothing to do with salvation or bringing you into God's covenant, uh, that the new covenant is internal and not external in nature, that that symbolism is passed away as a requirement. Yet after that principle was established, he had Timothy circumcised because he had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. 
And uh, he did that to provide opportunity for witness in Jewish circles where he would not unnecessarily offend them. So he's applying the principle of being all things to all men. Well, in this vision that God gives Peter, he declares all meats clean. Now, here's a good principle, and you can stand on it. God never uses an illustration that has error in it. He always uses an illustration that has truth in it. In other words, God doesn't use an untruth to teach a truth. So our Seventh-day Adventist friends, when they come to Acts 10, and they still, of course, argue that the dietary laws of the Old Testament are binding today, and so they won't eat you know, certain foods, and some of them go even beyond that, and they're you know, full-blown vegetarians, though they would say that that's not a biblical restriction. But they would come to Acts 10 and they would say, well, the purpose of the vision was so that Peter would relate properly to Gentiles. And of course, he's going to get ready to go down and witness to Cornelius and his home and all his friends and relatives. Um, Yes, but God never uses an illustration with error in it to teach truth. And you can bank on that wherever you go in the, in the New Testament, illustrations that Jesus uses or another apostle and so forth. So in um, Mark chapter seven, another critical passage dealing with uh, what we can and can't eat under the new covenant. Let me just turn over there, Mark seven. Uh, I know we have someone on the line, but they'll just have to wait since we're in the middle of this question. Uh, but I know they'll be patient and they can uh, listen over the phone. Um, Jesus uh, called the multitude to him again, and he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, there's nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him, but the things which proceed out of the man are that which defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when leaving the multitude, he had entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. Remember, he's dealing with these Uh, Pharisees who were so intent on cleaning the outside of the cup that they missed the issues of the heart. And because they went through all the formations properly and jumped through all the right hoops, they thought they were fine. And as long as they followed the ceremonial law and the, the dietary laws and so forth, they thought they were righteous. And they missed the whole point of the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. And so his disciples questioned him about this. Remember, they're all Jews. They've been brought up under these dietary laws of the Old Testament. And he said, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because, he do, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and then is eliminated? Thus, the Bible says he declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that which defiles the man from within comes from the heart. And then he describes the things that come out of the human heart, that that's the real problem, not the issue of food. So under the new covenant, the Lord declares all meats clean. With that said, um, what God did before the law with Noah still applies in this day. And so if you remember in Acts 15, they had a big council and it was over how Jews and Gentiles should get along under this one umbrella now called the church, the body of Christ. And when it's all said and done, uh, James stands up and he says, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to you, to them, that they abstain from foods contaminated by idols and from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. 
Remember, these are people who are coming from intensely pagan backgrounds. And so James says, here's the things we really need to emphasize with them. And they're all moral issues. They're not ceremonial and moral. They're all moral issues. So just like God told Noah not to drink the blood of any animal, that was a pagan practice that was still around in the first century. And it is still around in some countries of the world. And because of the sacredness of blood, because the life is in the blood, you are not to eat something that was strangled. In other words, there was a way to kill an animal. Most of the meat you buy today in this country has not died by strangulation, but the, the animal has been bled out. Uh, but there are some countries of the world in paganism where people strangle the animal dead and they drink the blood of the animal. Um, and so there are even some places here in the United States where um, you can buy what we would call blood sausage. And that would be prohibited because of the sacredness of blood. He's not talking about, you know, eating steaks that are cooked rare when the cow has been properly butchered. But he is talking about drinking blood because God wants to underscore all the way through the pages of Scripture The principle that the life is in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And pagans who will deny that essential truth, interestingly, in their idolatry that is satanically inspired, are involved in the ingestion of literal blood. And that does not please the Lord. The only other restriction that Paul gave was what was said here in the Jerusalem Council about meat dedicated to idols. And so Paul, you know, realized that, you know, you would go in that day and you might buy meat that came out of a um, idol worship temple. What a person would typically do in their idolatry is they would take an animal and a portion of the animal would be dedicated to the, um, excuse me, the whole animal would be dedicated to the idol and a portion would be given as an offering. And then the rest of the meat that was perfectly good meat would go to the local market. And Paul said, look, understanding the complexity and not being able to, you know, separate every single issue. It's kind of like today. People say, well, I don't want to put my money in the bank because, you know, the bank is, um, you know, might give a loan to Planned Parenthood that, you know, will in turn, uh, you know, you know, be involved in some abortion clinic. There are some things that are virtually impossible to separate yourself from. So Paul said, look, you go into the meat market, great, buy it. But he taught that if you knew specifically that meat had been sacrificed and dedicated to an idol, and you even go to someone's table and they say, oh, this is meat that we dedicated to our idol, and we want you to have this wonderful meal with us. Paul said, then you don't do it because then you're giving endorsement to their pagan religions. And of course, even today, Christians in some countries of the world have to deal with these issues. There are Hindu Christians, uh, Christians saved out of Hinduism and in India. Uh, there are meats sometimes offered to a Hindu god. Uh, in Islam, there is halal food that is dedicated to Allah. In fact, if you go to a, a market today, there are some supermarkets here in America and they have a label on it and it says halal food, which tells you this was meat that was dedicated to Allah. And when you are aware of something like that, Paul says, then you restrain simply as a matter of testimony. Uh, Knowing that there's no such thing as an idol, 
there's only one true God, but you do not want to give endorsement to false religion. So it comes down to the principle of separation. Anyway, I hope that helps. It's kind of a long answer, but um, it will give you something to think about. When we come to Romans 14, we'll explore this in much more depth in our exposition of the book of Romans that we're uh, going through right now on Sunday mornings at Community Bible Church. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Hey, thanks for calling. How can we help today? Uh, We have a Christian friend who uh, recommends we learn more about the teachings of Joseph Prince and Les Feldick, okay. who are preachers, and I wondered if you knew anything about them. And uh, I don't know the latter man. I know the former man, Joseph Prince, and he's from, you know, uh, charismatic Pentecostal persuasion, um, has a lot of theology that is highly questionable, um, so I would not encourage you to do that. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of confusion in some Pentecostal realm, realms. I don't want to broad brush it. Um, some of them have cleaned up their act a little bit in the last couple of decades, but in some Pentecostal realms, there's just a lot of bad doctrine and confusion. And, you know, where someone will teach like Prince that, you know, healing is in the atonement. You can be healed from all disease. And if you're not, it's your lack of faith. And, and you know, they come up with these bizarre doctrines that no one else has seen in 2,000 years. And a good rule of thumb is if it's new, it's not true. If it's new, it's not true. And then they take some doctrines that were uniquely or some aspects of Christianity that were uniquely to the apostolic age, and they make them as um, applying to today. Take miracles, for instance. God is still the God of miracles. He can perform a miracle whenever or however he chooses to. But if you study biblical history, miracles have never been consistent throughout time. There have just been great turning points in biblical history where God did miracles. God never did a miracle through Noah. God never did a miracle through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, any of the patriarchs. In fact, the first realm of miracles that come on the scene are through Moses, whom Deuteronomy 18 tells us is a type of Christ. And he passes the baton on to Joshua, who does a few miracles for a short time until they're established in the promised land. And then there are no miracles. And uh, and yet Abraham, who's the friend of God, the father of all who believe, uh, he's the prime example of faith that the New Testament gives us to emulate. He never did a miracle. Uh, was he unbelieving? Uh, I think of uh, John the Baptist. Jesus said, there was never born a man from a woman greater than John, and yet he was the least in the kingdom of God, at least in the sense that he died prior to the establishment of the new covenant. He never saw the new covenant uh, come. He was beheaded before Jesus actually died, was raised from the dead, and God the Holy Spirit was sent to permanently indwell people. And yet, John, no one ever born of a woman greater than he, um, yet he never did a miracle in his life. Uh, You know, so it's not a mark of spirituality as some of these teachers would have you to believe. So Moses and Joshua did some hundreds of years went by, no miracles done in Israel uh, by God's men. None of the major or minor prophets ever did a miracle, Uh, but you have Elijah and Elisha come on the scene, two prophets of God. I say major minor, minor prophets, that, that designation from the fourth century uh, describing the 12 minor prophets and then the major prophets. 
Um, th- those guys never did a miracle. And then hundreds of years went by after Elijah and Elisha pass off the scene. No one does a miracle until Christ and the apostles come on the scene. And again, what took place through them were foundational. Second Corinthians twelve twelve tells us that Paul argues against those who say he was a false apostle. And he said, no, they're the ones that are misguided. I had the signs and wonders that only an apostle can do. If everyone could do the signs, wonders, and miracles that Paul did, then his whole argument to say that this is a sign of his apostleship falls apart. Uh, And so hundreds, really a few thousand years have gone by, and God, through an individual, is not doing miracles. Uh, But he will again on the scene, uh, the final turning point in biblical history during the Great Tribulation, He will bring back two witnesses. Many believe that they are Moses and Elijah brought back to the earth because their ministries certainly mimic the ministries of Moses and Elijah. And those two men will do miracles as a final call to repentance. So um, I would just stay away. If, If they're endorsing the first guy, though, I've never heard of the second guy. He's probably just as dangerous. Just stay away from him. It's not going to be good for your spiritual health. And, and the way for you to become healthy is one, to be in a good sound church where the Bible is being opened and taught. And I, I often encourage people to, our church at least offers the discovery class, which is a 45 week discipleship course. You can go online to search the scriptures in 25, actually about 30 of those weeks are online uh, in the Back to Basics series. And uh, Back to Basics 1 covers three weeks in that class. And it really grounds a person in the basics so that they can become more discerning. Um, You know, it's like with the Secret Service. They are the people responsible for counterfeit money in this country. We usually think of them just in terms of protecting a president or some special official. But their primary, of course, function initially was over the issue of counterfeit. And the way they initially trained those guys, I don't know how it happens today, was with the real stuff. And they knew the real stuff so well that when they touched a counterfeit bill, they could immediately spot it. And really, that's a biblical principle. You don't necessarily have to learn error to be able to defend against it as much as you need to learn the truth. And when you know the truth so well, you can spot a phony in a second's time. Anyway, I appreciate that question, Rick. Let's go to the next one. And a few have been dictated. I don't know if we have anyone on the line right now, but two or three calls have come in. So let's go to the next. All right. Indeed, we do have some dictated. Uh, Our next listener has a Christian friend. uh, Actually, uh, they would like to know what the Bible says about birth control. Your your wife, uh, Audrey, uh, is getting ready to post uh, her piece on birth control on her website. But in the meantime, maybe you could share some. Well, go to that. I think it's probably up there already. Maybe not. So, But it will be up there by tomorrow. Go to mfth.org. And Andre and I wrote a piece on birth control. But just to give you the quick answer, and it's much more detailed in terms of your thinking your way through it. Um, You know, today, birth controls, certainly some of them, some of the methods are so sophisticated that all they are is many abortions. Um, And so any evangelical Christian across the board is going to argue against those forms of birth control that basically um, create an early abortion uh, based on the medicine that you've put in your body. And again, we kind of detail that a little bit there uh, in that article. But then there are other types of uh, birth controls that are non-abortifacients. And 
Uh, the question is, are they right to use? And a lot of Christians, again, in our day, they've just bought into the world's mentality and they've thought, well, you know, um, we live in a day where we have all these uh, mechanisms that were not available to Christians before 1960. And really, it's in the 1960s when birth control comes in. And the people who push them, interestingly enough, is the women's movement, who want basically to have intimacy without responsibility. And um, they are against children. And a lot of Christians get married. And I discuss this, of course, with young couples in premarital counseling and They think, well, you know, we're going to have a baby. We're going to get married, let's see, in May of 2014. And we're going to have our first child in September of 2017. Oh, really? Tell me about it. You know, what, what, what they're basically saying is we are over the womb. We are the author of conception. And interestingly, for many Christian couples, and I think it's a divine rebuke, who have been on birth control, they come off of it and they try to get pregnant and very often they can't and they don't understand it. And they'll go to the doctor and he checks out and she checks out and there's no physical, logical reason why they cannot conceive. And sometimes that's when they come in, they speak to me and I'll ask them, well, tell me about your birth control and they'll give me the scenario I just painted for you. And I'll say, what you really need to do is repent of that because you basically in your pride and arrogance said that we are the author of conception and we are over this and not God. And I said, and you need to ask God for his forgiveness for that. And it's amazing how they will often do that the next month they're pregnant. Um, Because, you know, God is the one who opens the womb and children are a blessing from him. And we don't really see children anymore as a blessing from God. There there was a time when neighborhoods would be built and they would automatically build parks in the neighborhood and sidewalks for the children to uh, be able to be walked on in their strollers and so forth. And you could see as the attitude towards children began to change in the 70s and 80s, those things were kind of left behind. Uh, and unless it's a neighborhood today with amenities in it, some, you know, special neighborhood, those things that usually are not included any longer. And it's because we don't have a positive view towards children. Yet the Bible affirms that children are a blessing from God. And if you don't really believe that, then that's the starting place. You know, I don't see too many Christians who say, God, you know, you've just been too good to me with health, you know. Health, I've had so much, just stop blessing me in that realm. No, they say, God, keep it up. Or, you know, God, you've taken care of me and my material needs above and beyond anything. I, you can stop. I, I, I've got enough. Just just stop. No, we, God, pour it on if you want, you know. Um, but when we come to children, it's a different mindset. Um, so we kind of walk through some specifics when birth control might be allowable, when it is not Um, And so I want you to read the article because I don't want to give an incomplete answer and for someone to run away with my words and to misrepresent them. So read the article. It will be up there by tomorrow, I promise you. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, our next caller says that Christians have varying views on baptism. Some believe baptism is not not necessary for a believer. Some believe in full immersion. Some believe in sprinkling with water. What does the Bible say? The Bible teaches the right person at the right time by the right method. Very simple. The right person is a believer. There's no illustrations whatsoever of infant baptism anywhere in the Bible. Most would see that as a late 4th century phenomenon. There may be one case in 197 AD, and it's debatable whether it's an infant or not, 
that some would say, well, here's the first case of infant baptism. But even if it is, it's a few hundred years after the ascension of Christ. And infant baptism came into full-blown usage in the late 4th century because so many children never made it to the age of five. Christians couldn't open their Bible and read like we can in our, in our day and uh, converse with the scriptures. They were dependent on other people to, to uh, read and teach. Paul makes it very plain. Don't neglect the public reading of scripture. Why? Because that's when you were going to hear the word of God. You didn't have a quiet time with an open Bible. Now, you might copy Scripture, and you might have a page of Scripture, and somebody else would copy that page, and somebody else would copy it, and they'd pass it around and so forth. But before the printing press, um, you know, people didn't have the accessibility. In, in the process, there were some traditions that developed in the church that were not biblically oriented, and one such tradition is infant baptism. It means different things in different denominations and cultures, but it's just really not a biblical uh, doctrine. There are five household baptisms in the New Testament, and those are typically the passages that people use to defend infant baptism. Well, the jailer and his whole household were baptized. And they say, well, obviously there were little infants. We don't know that. We don't even know if he was married. If there was a wife and she came to faith, then certainly she was. And if there were children who were able to understand, but in four of the five household baptisms, four that are found in the Acts of the Apostles, one that is found in 1 Corinthians, it tells us specifically that everyone heard, received, and believed the word. One or all of those designations are given. And I think in the fifth, where it's not mentioned, you can assume that to be true because God would never contradict himself. And the great commission that Jesus gave five times in the New Testament, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, make converts, you could say. It doesn't say do discipleship. That's not what the verse says. It says, make disciples. And that verse has been abused. Um, Certainly, there is a process we might call discipleship, but that's not what that verse is speaking about in the command, go therefore and make disciples. He takes the limited commission of Matthew 11 when he says, listen, don't go into the way of the Gentiles. I want you to just go to the house of Israel. And he broadens it. And so for the last couple hundred years, we've used the designation Great Commission to, to say, well, Jesus has broadened the commission now to all nations. You could say, make converts of all peoples now. Don't go just to the house of Israel. Go to the ethne, go to the Gentiles, baptize them. Why? Because that's the first step that a new believer takes. And so as you read through the Acts of the Apostles, usually on the same day, sometimes the same hour, when people got saved, they were immediately baptized. There are some exceptions to that, but that was the general rule. Why? Because that was your outward confession of faith that you had come to know the Lord Jesus. So you make disciples, you baptize them, and then you teach them, you instruct them in the ways of the Lord. And the command is binding, and law I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, we do a meeting called Meet the Pastor, where people can come and find out our core values and have questions answered and how to become a member. We have one on Thursday night here at CBC at 715, if you're interested. Um, in either case, someone came last Sunday night. Sometimes we do them on Sunday because people cannot come during the week. In this particular individual, his dad, of whom is a pastor, said he doesn't think you should baptize people. Now, that was just something for the apostolic age. No, it was not. The command in the Great Commission is to the end of the age. And one of the reasons his dad reacted so strongly against it was because he had seen baptism abused. Well, that's not a reason to throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
So in Acts 8, the eunuch who has come to faith as Philip the evangelist is sharing the plan of salvation from the Old Testament because the New Testament was not yet written. And he's sharing it from Isaiah 53 where the whole plan of salvation is found. Philip in his heart believes. He comes to faith and he says, look, water, why can't I be baptized? And the word means immerse. There is a word for sprinkling, ratizo, in the Greek New Testament, never used in reference to the ordinance that we call baptism. In fact, the word baptism, we kind of coined it as a religious word today, but it wasn't necessarily religious if you lived in Bible days. Um, the word just meant to immerse. If I had a piece of white cloth and I wanted to turn it red, I would baptize it into red dye. I would immerse it. And only immersion can picture death, burial, and resurrection. So when one is immersed, brought under the water and up, they are picturing death, burial, and resurrection. They're saying, the reason I am going into heaven, they're giving God glory. The reason I'm going into heaven is because of the death, burial, and resurrection. So when you travel the world, you discover over 90%, some missiologists put it at 95%. It's not a Baptist thing. This is just a Bible thing that about 90 to 95% of evangelical Christians worldwide baptize after conversion as a sign or a symbol of salvation. It's like my wedding band. I didn't put it on before I was married, but when I got married, the ring didn't marry me. God did. What God has joined, let no man divide. The ring is just a symbol of what God has done. Well, baptism is a symbol of what God has done in Christ, that he died, was buried, and was raised. You are affirming the gospel. Some people say, well, I'm not ready to be baptized, though I've received Christ. I I feel like I need to become a stronger Christian. Then they don't really understand baptism because baptism isn't about you. It's about Jesus. It's about giving glory and honor and praise to him. So pouring, sprinkling, that's not baptism. Uh, Immersion is. Now, I have this caller since you called. If you want, um, I'll send you a booklet. It's about 20 pages long. I sat down one day, what are all the questions people have ever asked me about baptism? I go through virtually every passage in the New Testament dealing with the subject of baptism. We'll be happy to send it to you electronically, or you can pick it up, or if you need to, we'll mail it to you. All right, let's go to the next question. All right. uh, Speaking of baptism, we do actually have a listener on the line that has a question about her baptism. Uh, Caller, are you there? Yes, I am. Yeah, thanks for calling today. How can we help? Hi. Well, good morning. Well, Pastor Brogy, I was baptized, but I was baptized at a church where there was a female pastor, which I know since I have gotten a little more discerning that that was not a good thing. But I was baptized by one of the deacons there. So, and I, I was had conversion, and, you know, I do believe in Jesus Christ. Is that baptism a valid baptism? So because you, you, were, leader, you were definitely saved, you're telling me. Well, yes, absolutely. So you definitely knew Christ, and you were baptized since your conversion by immersion. Yes. Yes, I would say it is. Um, Here's the thing. Uh, Baptism is what we would call a local church ordinance. Uh, That's terminology that describes a biblical truth, much like the Lord's Supper. Um, It's a local church ordinance. Now, I do not believe that the Bible demands or dictates how often, say, the Lord's Supper should be... um, celebrated. Some churches say, well, it should be celebrated every week. And so someone just asked me, why don't we have it every week at Meet the Pastors since they broke bread on the first day of the week? Well, in some passages of Scripture, when they break bread, that is clearly the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, Sunday, uh, a reference to the Lord's Supper. But in other passages, it's a reference to a meal where they would say, we're going to break bread, meaning we're going to have a meal together. 
And if you want to argue that in every instance it's a reference to the Lord's Supper, then you have to take the other passages where it said they broke bread daily. And now we have to conclude that we have the Lord's Supper every day. So God doesn't dictate. That is a local church ordinance. And so there's some freedom there. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So it is with baptism. It is a local church ordinance, but how it should uh, and by whom baptizes is basically a decision of the local church. In our church, it's pastors. Why? Because, number one, we have seen baptism abused in our day. And people who want to, sometimes people say, well, they come into my office with their child and pastor. I was wondering if I could baptize my son. He's, he's come to, to faith in Christ. I said, well, let's, let's talk to your son here, and we'll talk to their son. And within five minutes, it becomes obvious to me and to the dad that the child hasn't even met Christ. And um, the child was just basically giving the rehearsed answers that the dad and mom trained them with, but didn't have any clear understanding of scripture. So when you moved out of the, you know, planned and rehearsed dialogue, the child was confused and it was clear they didn't even know what the gospel was. And yet you have this parent who's ready to baptize their child. Well, that's not really wise, I think, especially in our day where there is so much confusion over baptism and the gospel has very often been watered down and metaphors that have been around for the last 60 or 70 years have been substituted for the plan of salvation, like inviting Jesus into your heart and so forth. So um, with that said, uh, there is some freedom and wisdom would dictate how a particular local church would, would function. But if you were baptized by a believer after conversion— as a symbol of salvation, as wrong as it is for a woman to be a pastor, uh, still then you had a biblical baptism, and it would be legitimate. So, Does that help, listener? Yes, it does. Thank you very much. I just keep thinking about this all the time, and I was just very concerned, and I thank you very much for answering my question. You have a blessed day. Thank you. Now, if it was in a different shoe where you had a woman who was not a Bible-believing pastor, now, certainly she was either an ignorant pastor or a disobedient pastor. But still, um, if you had one who was not a believer, then, you know, it's not a legitimate baptism because God's people are to perform baptism on another believer. That's how it unfolds in the New Testament. All right, uh, let's go to the next question. All right, our next caller has a question regarding the Lord's table. In his church, they all drink from one cup. In this day and age, what do you think about this? Well, it's a, it's a good question, and, um, you know, a lot depends on the size of the church. Uh, I was in Eastern Europe, and um, they were asking me about the Lord's Supper, and uh, I said, well, here's how we do it, and we have these trays with these little individual uh, communion cups, and they said, well, well, wait a minute, the Bible talks about one cup. And I said, now, uh, you have about 1,500 people here in your church on Sunday morning, you don't use one cup. Uh, you have about seven cups with your deacons up in the front who migrate through the congregation. And as it gets low, you, you add more fluid to the cup. So I said, even you, and you're not using one cup. So, I mean, just the principle there is that the Lord's Supper, there was, you know, one piece of bread, one cup, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 uses that as a picture of our oneness in Christ. 
He's not being rigidly legalistic that if 20,000 gathered for the apostles' teaching, that we had to have one cup that we distributed all the way through the congregation. And now we live in a day where there's so many communicable diseases. Uh, You know, to me, I I just would rather have my own, you know, individual cup. But if you want to call it one cup, then, you know, we can have this big set of trays with a big top on it. And, okay, this is one big cup with that's uh, segmented into all these little compartments, all right? So, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, I'm not saying that people who have one cup, if they want to do that, fine. But, you know, if the church grows, it might, you know— uh, make the service real long, and two, you know, th- there are folks who spit into the cup, and I prefer not to drink somebody else's spit, thank you very much, but uh, I know God would protect me if I had to, but I prefer not to. The good thing when I go to Eastern Europe and I celebrate the Lord's Supper is the pastors get to drink first, so, you know, we we don't have to wait until they wipe the rim and whether wonder whether somebody spit or not. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Uh, Cheryl from Worcester, Massachusetts writes, Worcester. If someone leaves a local assembly because they believe there is sin going on and they've followed Matthew 18 and 1 Timothy 5 to try to resolve the issues, is it appropriate for other members to ask the people who left why they left? Over the course of the past few years, quite a few mature Christians have left our church including several upstanding deacons. They leave quietly, and when asked why, they say they don't want to discuss it for fear of being accused of being divisive. Certainly, we don't want to be divisive, but if there is a problem in our church that might put our family in spiritual or physical danger, I think we should know about it. We should know so that we can protect ourselves and the saints in our assembly, and we should know so that we can follow the biblical course of action to bring that person or persons who are sinning to repentance. Is it wrong for us to want to know the facts behind why people are leaving? We don't want to gossip. We don't want to be divisive. We want to edify the congregation, maintaining purity within the church and encourage restoration to those in sin. Well, it's a good question. And people leave churches for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes as an elder board or as a pastor, you're dealing with a particular individual and uh, you know of moral issues in the background, and you can't share that because the person has repented of it. The principle in Matthew 18 is if your brother sins, you reprove him in private. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. If he doesn't listen, take it to the whole church. And so sometimes church discipline will stop at the first or, or second level, and that's as far as it goes. Um, And there are different ways church discipline can be exercised. Paul, for instance, talks about a divisive person and who's creating trouble in the fellowship. You rebuke him one, you rebuke him a second time. If he doesn't listen, you put him out. Um, He's not talking about going through the whole chain of command. He's just a problem and he doesn't need to be in the church harming the sheep. But sometimes uh, as a pastor, you know, sometimes you even have to, you know, I have more pastor friends who've had to let people go. Uh, for moral reasons, and they are aware of the moral reason. You as a pastor are aware of the moral reason, but nobody else is, and they've repented of it, and they're dismissed. And then, you know, you're the bad guy because you are maintaining confidentiality. You're trying to protect his wife and his children, and you're just the bad guy that you let that person go. And sometimes even if people are aware of moral reasons, they don't think someone should be fired. Listen, the, the, the call and the standards for someone in ministry are higher. And being higher, 
there has to be certain things that must be true in that person's life. These things must be, Paul will argue in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, for someone to be an elder or pastor in a church. If they're not, then he's disqualified himself from ministry. It doesn't mean that he could not potentially ever be restored back into ministry. He could potentially, through repentance, be restored back immediately into the fellowship, but not into the ministry leadership position because the standards are high and there has to be some things that are true. So there may be some people who are leaving, who are actually leaving for the whole wrong reason, and they don't understand the decision that the pastor has made or the board of elders has made or the board of deacons or whatever your church polity might be. And, um, and you just think they're just being unfair when actually they're doing everything. And usually sooner or later, very often, the character deficiency or the lack of spirituality or passion or what that person needs to be qualified will sooner or later show itself and people will understand. When I had a staff member early in the 1990s, I let him go and I was Mr. Bad Guy and some people left the church over it. And then it came out about three and a half years later, what a profligate he was. And uh, then, you know, I was exonerated at that point. But listen, you know, if, if your pastor is a man of God, follow him. And if you have some questions, go to your pastor and say, hey, look, all these people are leaving. Is there something, you know, what, why are they leaving? What's your perception? And, you know, get just ask him to respond. Um, there are reasons to leave a church. You mentioned here in the email that, well, you know, there's some deficiencies, but there's no moral issues. Well, you know, sometimes, you know, you have one chance to raise your kids and you're in a church where the pastor is not morally deficient, but he's not taking his responsibility seriously on the Lord's day of teaching and preaching and growing the people. Um, and there are a lot of pastors who, you know, midstream changed the church paradigm that God gives in the pastoral epistles. And they say, well, we now need to on Sunday relate to unbelievers and we're going to design the whole service around them. And if you want the deeper teaching, you know, you can be in a small group during the week and you can get it. Give me a break. Number one, that goes against the model that God gave that on the first day of the week, they met among other reasons for apostolic teaching. And that's what people still do today. We as pastors are to give the apostolic teaching, the faith, articular in Jude referring, we're to preach the Bible, preach the word in season and out of season. That's what we're supposed to do. And then when they leave the care, the deeper teaching, to these small groups during the week, most of the time these small group leaders aren't that mu- very mature, and they're oftentimes not much further along than some of the brand new believers that they have in their group, and, and you've entrusted the teaching of apostolic doctrines to someone who's not called and qualified and gifted of God to teach the Holy Scripture. I wouldn't want to be in a church like that. Um, so there are times other reasons to leave. Anyway, we're out of time. Men's Wildlife Supper, Friday night. Dr. Bob Record and a surprise guest, a name represented by every American. You will know this person's name when you see him. You don't want to miss it. Go online to cbcbuford.org to register. 